Aloha, guys. How you doing? It's so great to have you here today. I know we're all locked inside, locked down, and in quarantine, and wondering what we're doing with our lives, and when we can get back to work, and all these questions. So we need distractions. Distractions from life. And that's what I'm trying to do with you guys. I'm giving you a little bit of distraction to your everyday humdrum. I would probably need to go brush my hair. Maybe I should put on some clothes. When's the last time I had on shoes? You know, life things you're going through right now. Some of you guys are really probably right now going, he's right. When's the last time I put on pants? I just lay around the couch and watch good episodes of Gunsmoke on MeTV. Well, that's right. Now it's time for the Ramaskele podcast. And I've got a great guest for you guys. A friend of mine for, oh, 30 years or more, he actually was one of the guys that uh, helped me get my start in the big time in Las Vegas. Uh, he moved me up. I was working, and he moved me up the comedy chain. You guys probably know him uh, from The Sopranos and Blue Bloods. He is a regular on Blue Bloods with Tom Selleck. But uh, he's been a friend of mine for years, and he was he was gracious enough to say, Sure, I'll come do the podcast. It's my buddy, Steve Sharippa. Now, I recorded this podcast uh, on Skype, and I'm uh, going to join this right when I ask him about how it's going on the lockdown in New York City, where Steve lives. So let's join it in progress right now. But it is. It's not good. <sighs> how long do we think this is going to stay like this? What's your prediction? Hey, listen, I have no idea, Steve. I mean, I honestly have no idea, and I also don't think they should be opening nothing now, man. I know, I know, I don't know what your feelings. I don't want to get into politics. Yeah. Things are bad here. I don't know what it's like where you are, or California, in New York City, 500 people died yesterday. Dang. Dang. I mean, over 12,000, 13,000 people died. Personally, I know numerous people have died. Numerous people are sick. And maybe it's hard when people don't see it in front of them. Yeah, that's what I think it is. You know, and you don't see it and you don't hear it and you don't know one connected to it. So then maybe you're going, what am I doing in my house? Ba, 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 ba. But in the meantime, when you're seeing and literally – Going outside, you're taking your your life into your hands. Yeah. Now, have you been Honestly. have you been out? Have you done the trip? Of course, to the I grocery go out store? about an hour a day. I just walk. I, a lot of people aren't wearing masks. A lot of people aren't wearing gloves. A lot of families. A lot of kids. I don't understand that part. Uh, you know, some people have to be out. You know, I, I don't get it. You know yeah, where we, they. We ran to the grocery store yesterday, and the, the wife put on a the mask and had gloves. And she goes, I feel weird. I hope I'm not the only one like this at the grocery store. And as soon as you walk in, everybody well, now you have gloves. To, everyone here has to do it. And it took too long to do that, but people aren't complying. So I think it's just going to go round and round and round and round. Like I said, it's really bad here. They, they can't bury people. They're better, better uh, burying people that die even not of the virus, out in Potter's Field. Mm. That's they one of those things you hear about in movies. And then they're going to exhume them a year from now, so you can't even get a proper funeral. So that's what I'm saying. I, I don't know if everyone realizes, you know, what it is. It's 
Not good around here. I'll yeah, we had the we had a protest here in Colorado, Denver yesterday with the whole, you know, open it back up. It's time to open up the economy. Well, listen, I, I, we're all getting killed financially. All of us. Everyone is all screwed one way or another. Yeah. Some people worse than others, right? Right. Uh, but uh, I, I think it should be open when the scientists and doctors say it should be open. You know, I yeah. mean, it's terrible. But Now, do you live in New York City? Proper? I live right in Manhattan. Oh. Yeah. I'm right downtown Manhattan yeah. as we speak. Yeah. So and I have a house in California and I haven't been able to get there. And it's probably better there as far as you spread out. You have a backyard, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh here in the building, you know, it's an apartment building, you know. Yeah. Someone gets on the elevator, you get off. <laughs> yeah, I was working cruise ships right when this right when this hit. And uh, I was still working, you know, and they were talking about it in different places. And if somebody got on the elevator and did a, <clears throat> boy, you could just feel the mm, up against yeah. the walls and, you know. Well, you got to. I mean, look, that business is, unfortunately, for you guys on cruise ships, that business is over for a while. For a while, yeah. It's going to be at least summertime or maybe even Is that later. where you are you on cruises mostly? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of a lot of cruises now, a lot of cruise ship What's work. What's that like? You take your wife with you? I'm allowed to, but she has a real job, so oh. she can't really go on two or three weeks at a time with me. You know, and you don't mind that? Uh, yeah, I hate it, but wouldn't wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, I would not like it. I could see a younger comic, you know, if a guy's 25 and just starting, I could see, you know, doing it for a little while. Yeah. You know, like a little bit, because otherwise you're buried at sea, literally, you know, and, and nothing else is going to happen. I mean, it's a good way to make money because the clubs have dried up, I guess. Yeah, but yeah the clubs I, the clubs now, you feel like you're just a liquor salesman in a way, you know? Yeah. You no, no, I know, time. I know the whole, the whole uh, thing has changed, but, uh, you know, if, uh, if you're a single guy, you're out there, I guess it may not be so bad. I've never been on a cruise <laughs> Doesn't you, do you've it. never done it ever? ever. Oh, I thought that's one of those things that's required of New Yorkers. Everybody yeah, I meet on a cruise is from New York or, or Florida. You know, it's not a chance. <laughs> You're not going to catch me on no cruise. It's, I just don't. It doesn't do nothing for me to go and eat with a bunch of people and be around people all day long. That's not a vacation. To yeah, me, man. yeah. So, but it's not the fact. It's just this little tiny boat going across the huge ocean that you know. No, that doesn't bother me. But what about uh, you? Allowed to mingle with the guests? Yeah, yeah. I, I the ship that I work for. I work for Royal Caribbean, and and they're pretty good about letting you so go you, out. You have nice quarters. Yeah. You live like a human. Yeah. And then there's yeah, other you, cruise lines that put you down in the bottom and make you wear a name tag and don't talk to the guests. And, you know, yeah, that's yeah. no good. No. I wasn't like that. I couldn't do I that at all. You got treated okay, you know. Yeah. But I mean, if you're a young guy, you're drinking, you're looking for girls, blah, 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 may not be so bad. Right. Or uh, you may not be looking for girls. You might be looking for more of those uh, grandmas that you like to. Uh, <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? Gilfs, you know. You know, yeah, you know, but but I, I liken the, the like, you know, people used to go in Vegas. Now, you know, that's how we know each other. I know you're probably close to 30 years or more. Yeah, at least now. Right? What's the first time you worked in Riviera? The 80s. Nin 1987, and that's where I was going to go with you. See, I was going to take you back to that very first yeah. time. Well, which we will, but I'm yeah. just saying – so years ago, when when a guy worked in a 
when a guy worked in a review in Vegas. Yeah. So, you know, you're in Splash or one of these shows and you're doing 10 Minutes a Night, Crazy Girls, or so many over the years. And you're doing that little 10-minute gig and, you know, you're making 2000 a week, 2500 a week, and they put you up in a hotel. Not a bad gig, but your career is in the shitter. Yeah. It's not and really a career. Yeah, you, you do that 10 minutes for the rest of your life. And as you see, guys, and I know many have done that, and it was good for, you know, a few years and then nothing. Yeah. When I done. when I went back to the Riviera Hotel, which is from you know where we know each other, the to go look at the walls before they shut it down was like just walking through this museum of comedy, like not not doing it anymore. Don't know what happened to that one. This guy's oh, yeah. dead. I don't those know. Pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those pictures. I personally hung those pictures. Did you? It's amazing. Yeah. When I so so we could go over nineteen eighty six. I started at the Riviera, May 4th, 1986. Had nothing to do with comedy. I had been uh, a bouncer in nightclubs and a maitre d'. Yeah. That's what I did. I sat people, but that's what I did for a living. And now I got into the hotel, which was the big jump because that was really hard to do because that was where the real money was, right? Yeah. yeah. You're seating people, you're getting tips. So I had worked. Paul Anka had a club and some other clubs and a restaurant in, in Hawaii. And I came back, you know, I did that for a year and I came back and I got this job and it was literally, I walked into the room that was, became the comedy club. It was a stacks of chairs, a crappy tables that were, you know, from somewhere else, they weren't brand new or nothing. Yeah. Just took them out of the convention area, whatever. And Bud Freeman was there, who I had no idea who he was. And uh, it was the improv. I worked for the hotel. I got the job. I I, I uh, interviewed a few times, got the job. And he said, they said, make a room, make a comedy room. They had a little crappy stage and no backstage and no nothing. And so I just put this room together the best I can, all by myself. Awesome room. Tables, moving tables and all that. And then we opened. And for the first three, four, five months, it was terrible. Oh. No business. It was terrible business. They had another show upstairs, Female Impersonator, that I had nothing to do with, Crazy Girls. And there was no business. And I was coming home with 10, 20 bucks a night. And uh, I was going to quit. You know, I said, you know, maybe, you know, this ain't, I got to get another gig. This ain't working. And then somewhere along the line, it just clicked. And the room is packed and packed and packed. And you packed. came to, by the time you got there, it was packed. Yeah, three shows a night, seven days yeah, a week. 350, 350, 400 people had held in there. And Saturdays were sold out. And, Thousands of people yeah. uh, a weekend became a big hit, you know. Well, it was great because you got to what, – what was it like? Uh, it was comedy and two drinks for $12 or something like that? Well, yeah, that was the sign. It was six ninety five. Yeah. <laughs> at first. Then it got a little more, but it took off uh, when it got more expensive. Ah. It but seems you know, like a little you, more uppity. Well, you perceive it as cheap. Uh, $7. How good could this be? Right. It was great comics. I think the first week was Bobby Slayton, Rich Scheidner, Marty Polio, mm-hmm. 
and Tommy Sledge. Remember that? Yeah, uh, yeah. He always it was the gangster, not the gangster, but the detective guy. Detective. Yeah, yeah. So they were the first. It was four comics, three shows a night. Crazy, a lot of work, uh, and you know. So we did that for you know for many years, and it was a big hit, and everyone wanted to work. It was a nice gig, and then uh, we got rid of Bud. Bud was taking too much money, man. Yeah. You know, he wasn't paying the comics. You know, I started seeing the checks, uh, you know, because then I got promoted and I'm writing out checks for ridiculous amount of money. Right. A week. Right. To, to him, not to the comics or you. To him. Then he's paying the comics. Yeah. So the hotel's paying him. He's paying the comics. And I'm going, this is crazy. And, you know, Bud never wanted, I wanted to book the room and, you know, we, we wind up patching things up, but, uh, you know, I wanted to book the room and I said, listen, I, you know, I, I opened up a little agency. I said, I'm booking a room in Houston and I'm booking this and I'm booking that, booking the maximum where you work yeah, for me. You yeah, know, I love that place. I said, I said we're, we're booking, uh, and, and he wouldn't give it to me. Uh, he, he gave it to his stepson. And so then the uh, Riviera said, can you do this on your own? I said, sure I can. I mean, I've been doing it anyway. So, uh, yeah, he was making an enormous amount of money and he was booking the comics and he was paying like a middle act seven fifty for 21 shows. Yeah. Uh, unlivable wage. Yeah. Well, and then 500, four or 500 MC for 21 shows. Then they cut it to, to 14 shows. Was a little better, but you know. So then it became the Riviera Comedy Club, and you worked there for me, and that that was good. And we changed the room and remodeled, and da da da. And it was a good gig. I thought everyone wanted to do it. You you got a uh, nice room in the hotel. You got uh, food in the buffet in the Monaco Towers. Right, and then you get <laughs> uh, you get the the buffet. So you know, three meals a day, and then uh, fifty bucks for the coffee shop. Drink tickets. So it was a bad gig. Yeah, I used to love the coffee shop in the Riviera yeah. because it felt like the old Vegas. It had the booth with the phone, yeah, like the yeah, phone would plug in at the booth. And <laughs> it was great. Everybody was there 24 hours and by the overlooking the pool. Yeah. It was a pool. Well, when I when I first started there, you were the host, maitre d' and all that. And yeah. uh, I was middling for a guy. And this is, I was telling somebody this the other day, and I don't remember, but you, you flipped the, the show. You, you said, you suck, you close yeah. now. And all I Who remember, was it? It, remember? Was a, it was a guy named Tony. And all the reason I remember that was because he had a joke that used to go, you know why so many Italians have the name Tony is they stamped to New York. That was Joey Villa. Joey, okay, Joey Villa, okay. Because I just remember that joke. To New York on the phone. So what, what it was was he was the comic in Splash, and he was a butt-ump-bump comic. Uh. He had been around. He was friends with the owner, Rickless. So what he would do, and he would he was the guy in Splash for years. He actually lived in the hotel. And what he would do is when they brought in Sinatra and Liza Minnelli and these big acts, they would shut Splash down. So he would somehow finagle his way in to work the comedy club. And he had no business being a comedy club comic. He would uh, yeah, pass away. But I tell you, he would come up and steal jokes. And one night he stole a joke from Rick Rockwell. So Rick Rockwell uh, had a thing. 
And I, you know, I remember he walked in. He was standing in the back of the room, and so one of the comics said to him, "What are you doing, Joey? Shopping?" You know, and and so he goes downstairs a week later, and he tells this joke. Uh, he's talking about the the U.S. mail, you know, mailman, and he goes, uh, "They just raised the the price of stamps. What did they do? Have to buy?" Next window, please signs. That's the joke. Funny uh-huh. joke. Yeah. It was to a convention of m- mailmen. <laughs> he had no idea. They started booing him. Oh, booing. He stole the joke. He told the joke, and they were booing him. I saw it with my own eyes. Funny. And he he got booed in the comedy club numerous times. He couldn't. Uh, him and there was another guy, Morty Storm. Morty Storm the Third, another old guy, and somebody did somebody a favor, and they booed him yeah, also. Yeah. He was just not the right place. The room is packed, and this guy's telling those jokes. Joey Villa couldn't uh, follow you in a gazillion years. Yeah, that's when yeah. you had the Elvis thing. Yeah, the, yeah, the Elvis pompadour and the the rockabilly stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was another time I, I was. I couldn't remember there was a comic that was on stage and you walked up into the middle of the room and pointed at him and go, do the funny stuff. Do the stuff I paid you to do. This is Listen, not man. what I paid. Guys <laughs> would bomb. Okay. I was nice. Listen, there's another thing, you know, with comics. And I saw something recently, Steve, somebody sent it to me on Facebook. Someone put up my picture or something. And comics from 30 years ago. Now, you're talking 1986. This is 2020. They were still complaining. I never liked him. He didn't book me. He didn't pay me enough. I asked for a raise, and he, and blah, 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 blah. 35 years ago. Now, when you're booking a room, i show sure you know this. If you give a guy a date, he loves you. If you don't book him, he hates you yeah. and motherfucks you. Mm-hmm. If you, uh, if a guy's MCing, he wants to middle. If a guy's middle, he's supposed to be headlining. The headliner's supposed to get more money, et cetera, et cetera. It's a no-win thing, yeah. you know. It's a no-win thing. So I would try to do the best I can that did well for the room. Not whether I left, left or not, because to be honest, most times I didn't listen to the act. You know what I mean? Uh, especially later on. Did you get Did you get feedback from like the staff to help sure, you decide? Sure. Yeah, yeah, Lynn and Donna at yeah. the time. I knew I know who does well, and I know who's a good comic and a bad comic. I also helped start a lot of people. Yeah. You know, uh, so you know you, it's a no win. So these people now, thirty years later, they're still uh, motherfucking me about uh, I didn't book them. You can't book everybody. Sometimes you book a guy, you also don't want any problems. So if you're going to give me no grief, I'm okay with that. But if you're going to be a problem and I'm getting a call from the front desk and there's a guy nine in the morning is eating breakfast in the employee cafeteria, drinking beer from the night before. Yeah. And I got to get that call at home at 9 a.m. or a guy's pissing in the lounge by the curtain at four o'clock or, you know. uh, Yeah. There was a comic got got called up to his room. He was lighting matches and throwing them, lighting matches in his room. The mattress was off the bed. He was laying like in the middle of the 
box spring and trying to light the thing on fire. So you have some insane guys. Yeah. And then you have guys that are no problem, no grief. They do a good job. I mean, that's the guy that I'm booking. You right. know, uh, not everybody came through there. You know, at one point or another, you know, you had Ellen and Bill Maher and Richard Belzer and Drew Carey and blah, blah, blah. You know, guys, uh, Rob Schneider and Spade and Chris Rock. And and then, you you know, guys fade away. Yeah. Now, who do you, uh, who did you have that uh, started there that you thought, OK, this guy is probably never going to make it, but did? Who surprised you by like, well, you know, holy crap? Uh, uh, not so much that, but you know who I helped? Doug Stanhope, who's gone on to like a big career. I mean, he was just hanging around Vegas. Yeah, I remember that. You know, and then, uh, you know, we started giving him some spots and then Bud, Bud would come in once in a while and then put some of the guys on evening at the improv or I would have uh, people when I had the bigger acts later on where we used some of the guys to open, Yeah, uh, uh, you know, for some people, uh, I don't know, you know, like to say, well, this guy really sucks, and then he got so much better. Uh, you well, know, Rappaport, well, you know, Michael Rappaport, yeah. who I like, and he's a friend of mine. He was the worst stand-up comic in the history of stand-up comics, and I still booked him, and he went on to be a big star, you know. Yeah, and now he's and back doing stand-up. He's back huh? doing stand-up oh, again yeah, now. Yeah. yeah, but I, I you see him at the Nick Games. I haven't seen him in a while, but. Michael went on to a huge TV and movie career, but could barely, (laughs) you know, I gave him a shot. I gave a lot of people that I thought, you know, some people worked really hard and, and I'd say, Hey, you know what? I give him five minutes. How's that going to hurt? It's a big deal to him. It's not that big deal to me. I got three other guys to cover, you know? Uh, so I would do that. I liked giving some people chances. I would walk into a place, a bar here in New York and, and, you know, even when I was on The Sopranos, I I was still booking the room mm-hmm. for 10 years. And I would go into a bar and we're just talking and this girl told me, yes, she's a stand-up. I've been doing it, blah, blah, blah. I said, do you want to go to Vegas for a week? She said, excuse me? I said, I'll get you a week in Vegas right now. I called the secretary, Patricia. Listen, this girl's going to call you, blah, 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 blah. The girl probably made her life. She probably tell that story to this day. She went out to Vegas a few times and wasn't bad. Yeah. Got the job done. Five minutes. How hard is it? Couple jokes and your next act is. Yeah. Well, that's that's basically, I mean, I I give you the credit for moving me up the chain of comedy. I've said that several times before because when when you flip that show, and I became the headliner. That was the first time I got to headline Vegas. So now I got to say Vegas headliner, yeah. which helped Absolutely. me in all the funny bones and all the other clubs. That moved me up the, the chain. Yeah. So I, I I've always said, I, I owe it to Sharippa. And I don't know <laughs> how, how he got more famous than anybody he ever booked. I don't yeah. understand this at all. I remember, uh, I remember uh, Franklin Ajay. You remember him? Mm-hmm. I ran into him in Australia a few years ago. I, I, I think he's living down there now. Funny, funny guy. Franklin Ajay, you couldn't get him off stage. I couldn't get him off the stage until later on I put where I could shut the microphone off from the back. Yeah. But at the time, it was bare bones. I just had the big set of keys. And after him going 20 minutes over, I just went to the front of the stage, dropped the keys. <laughs> you lock up. <laughs> How much time would he do? Uh, 
say he was supposed to do a half hour or 40, he would over an hour. Yeah. He was funny as hell, but you know what I mean? He would just go on and on. And this wasn't about that. This was get him in, get him out, get him back in the casino floor. Right. You know, we had shows like eight, 10 and 12. The shows were about an hour, 10 hour, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. You know, the comics weren't even doing their full time. This was, you know, fast food comedy. Boom, 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 boom. Get them in. Get the next crowd. Clean the room. Get them in. Get them out. Get them in. Uh, in plastic cups. You know, the porters. Clean come the in, room. Yeah. Things. Clean that room. Clean, Toss the clean room. Clean the room. Good. Let's go. Open the doors. Uh, and that's what that's what it was about. I mean, we respected the comedy. I never meddled really in like some managers would say, don't do this, don't do that. You had to be fairly clean. But I never told you, take that joke out, do this. I never did any of that. It wasn't my business. i tell you what What a guy, what some guys would do. Uh, I get a call one morning, and uh, I think it was Tim O'Rourke who passed away. Yeah. Poor guy, funny guy. And for some reason, he does morning radio. And he's motherfucking the hotel. The sheets are dirty and the towels oh, are in. Oh, no. Now, I don't know if he really meant it or it was just a general thing that he uses. And it was just a joke about where he's staying. And, you know, you do that. You yeah, the, the old style of like, I've got a great view in my hotel of a better hotel. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff, yeah. you know. Uh, and uh, the, the, for some reason on the way in, the president of the hotel was listening. Oh. Probably by accident, he got it on the car, and he calls me in. He said, I want you to fire him now. It was like Friday afternoon. And I go, man, the, the cat's got three days left. I mean, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I save him, and then I go to him and say, I mean, why would you do that? I, I, this is what I'm guilty of. I paid you. He was headlining. Yeah. I paid you. You got a room, you got food. You asked for the gig, I gave it to you. Now, you know, he never worked for me again. And there was other guys like that. What are you doing, man? What are you doing? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't I, understand, you know. I never understood that either, why guys would do that at other comedy clubs. You you would come in the condo the, condo the next week and it'd be trashed. And you thought... Why would you do this to a place that is paying you? Why would, yeah, you, I don't why would you throw pizza on the ceiling the, before you left? Yeah, I, I, I don't understand. I know you're young. You do we all do stupid things, but I never got that part. And and uh, you know, just common sense. I had a comic call me from the front desk. He says he put five dollars down, and he turned his head for a second, and the front desk clerk stole the five dollars. <laughs> I said, come on, this is impossible. And he's screaming, fucking, they took my money. And da, 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 da. I said, come upstairs, I'll give you the $5. It's no big deal. Da, da, da. Of course that didn't happen. Right. And there's cameras all over the place. But you have that, now you got to wonder the next time, do I need this guy's headache? No, you don't. He might be funny, but it doesn't matter. Did you ever find out why he th even thought that somebody stole $5? I I have no idea. There's a million stories, man. I mean, I could tell you uh, literally a million stories. Most of the guys were great. 90% great, no problem. 
They want the gig. They come in. They couldn't be more accommodating. You get in. You get out. Like I like to say when I do gigs now, we get in, we get out. Nobody gets hurt. Yeah. Go in. Boom, boom, boom. Get my check, and I go. Well, I I remember it. It was tor- sort of later on in the run, but you guys started paying us in the middle of the week. I don't know if you. I'm sure you remember that. It was like Thursday or Friday. We got paid. Yeah, maybe maybe they they. Uh... Some guys needed the money. That wasn't for no reason. Well, I always just assumed I would joke about like, gambling. Yeah, they go. Yeah, they're gonna get some of this back before we yeah. leave. <laughs> yeah. it's small potatoes. I used to. There's some guys uh, would uh, didn't want to gamble, so they would say, "Please don't give it to me until you know Monday morning when yeah. they were on their way out." Yeah. You know that could you know, be at the cage, and I would say, "Not until Monday." Yeah, you know, you go pick up your check. Nah, I don't think so. Not. I don't think a lot of the guys were gamblers. You know, there was usually of the three or four guys, one or two sober guys yeah. every week, you know. And I and they used to have that big AA convention. Did you ever do that? No, but I remember it happening there. They yeah. had it at Thanksgiving weekend. And the coffee and the gift shop guy told me that weekend they sold more mini airplane bottle liquor than any time of the year. <laughs> Oh, I'm now, not saying it. I'm just telling you what I heard. Now you you sort of broke me of gambling. I will give you this credit too. Is um, I, it was about three in the morning at the Riv, around that time. You walk past me and go, "What are you doing?" I was sitting at a slot machine, and you go, "What are you doing?" And I go, "Just killing some time gambling." You go, and you go, "Look around. We have to pay for this somehow." Yeah. And that always stayed with me. And my gambling now consists of. 20 bucks. I might do 20 bucks here and I'll walk away. But I, 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 that was the end of this thing. You know, I see people win. To me, uh, and I lived there for 25 years. To me, it bores the hell out of me gambling. Just, I'm just bored. I don't care if you give me the money for free. I want to. We would go some places, do appearances with the Sopranos, and they would give us, you know, here's a thousand in chips. And I'm finding, trying to find a way to keep 500 and make believe, you know, <laughs> they wanted, they wanted us in the casino, but it doesn't do it for me. That, that, you know, and I've seen people just get destroyed. You know, I've seen comics get destroyed. I mean, or, or just people in general over the years that you live there, there's no getting out from under the guy, Joey Villa was a, a sick gambler, uh-huh. sick, sick gambler, made a lot of money. And, and this was a crazy gambler. He was just one of so many, you know? Yeah. Now, how did you, how did you make the transition from the Riv to your first acting job? How did that actually come about? Uh, so I was, uh, so I was. It was the early nineties, and Bruce Baum. Remember Bruce Baum? I do. Uh huh. With the bags, the bags. And he looks like David Crosby, Baby you know, Man. Like, baby Man. He used to work for me a lot. You know, uh, nice guy. And he said to me one day, uh, he said, look, uh, I'm, I'm doing this sketch. There was that show. I don't know if you remember Fox. Fox had a comedy show on Sunday nights, uh, Friday night comics, oh. uh, Sunday night comics. And, and uh, he was doing these little films, these five-minute films. Uh, and so he said, I'm doing one in L.A. Uh, I wrote some. Would you want to do it? And I had never re- read a script or anything like that. So I read it and I went, you know, it was kind of funny. 
And I was like the lead guy, and the Geechee guy was in it, and Johnny Dark. And I think Barry Marta, you know? And I think Barry Marta might have wrote it with Bruce. And Bruce was a film guy. He was funny. And uh, I flew to L.A., you know? I, mean, I said, why not? And I read the thing, and I was in the tuxedo, and uh, we <laughs> shot it on a golf course. And it was a lot. Of, I had a lot of fun, man. I never did anything, never thought about doing anything. And I know it's going to sound like bullshit. I had such a good time that on the way home, I said, I kind of got a little rush, you know, like I said, man, that was great. I was like, man, you know, I think I shot it. Maybe I flew in on a Sunday morning, shot it, flew back. And uh, that was Sunday comics. And then I got a call from the casting person. I was in one with Lenny Clark. Mm -hmm. I would fly or drive to L.A., you know, and uh then I started getting little bit stuff, and then I started working with a guy in Vegas. And when something would come to town, he was a casting guy, yeah. and he would get me to audition. So I auditioned for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and I got it. And uh, a Chicago Hope, you know, I, you know, there was no pressure. Yeah, I wasn't looking to pay the bills. For me, it was a hobby. It was just a joke. So no yeah. acting, no acting uh, lessons, or have you done no, since, since then? Came up and helped me come up to my office and I would work one-on-one. I never took a class. I did one here once. It's not for me. And I still work with someone to this day. Yeah. I've been on Blue Bloods for five years. I was on The Sopranos. I was on another show, Secret Life of the American Teenager. I basically, luckily, worked for the last 20 years. Uh, And I still work with somebody one-on-one. When I get the script, I have a woman comes over, Joanna Bexon, works with a lot of comics. I had another guy doing The Sopranos. And that's, I started that way. I didn't even have headshots. Do you, you know? Do you feel, uh, how about your uh, memorizing lines? Do you have trouble memorizing lines or any you technique? You got to put the time you, in, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, it takes me a long time, but you got to put the time in. And I do, and it's a lot of work. And it takes hours and hours. I mean, you know, you can't just go, okay, I got it. But then when you get to the set and there's 200 people there watching you and you look like a jackass. Yeah. Well, that's uh, what I've always wondered. Because I've done a few things in commercials. Yeah. and But there's always been a little small room or just the camera guy. And now say your line. I've always wondered what it's like to actually have to do that full scene where the cast is all around you. Yeah. And, you know, just... And listen, you got to put the time in. That's there's no way around it. There's no shortcut. You know, people will say, well, what do you do? How do you do it? Everyone has their own process and it takes me hours of work. Yeah. Uh, But you know what? I would have a very difficult time. I mean, what you you have what an hour and a half of material, two probably, hours? Yeah, probably two or three now at this point. How you remember that? I have no idea. Well, that's, I have no idea. That was I, I did a, an online series just recently. I did a couple episodes, and I had trouble memorizing line. I mean, I got it and I memorized them. But somebody said to me, "You know, how do you memorize your stuff?" And I go, "Because I write it." I think because yeah. I write it, it's in my head. But if somebody else just gives you a piece of paper well, and you go, yeah, but ah. people, but people have jokes written for them. Yeah, you know, I have hosted stuff. Uh, I, I hosted Gotham. You know that show, yeah. which you should, you should certainly. I would love to do that once it gets back done. up. Yeah, when it gets back up, I'll I'll help you out there. Thanks. Uh, I'll see what I could do. Uh, but you know, I had to do that. I needed a teleprompter. 
And I did it like a monologue. I'm not trying to do stand-up. That's another thing. You don't fake doing stand-up. I see like Jeremy Piven, that ass wipe. He's doing stand-up. How do you become a stand-up? It takes you 10 years to get your voice and another 10 to know what you're doing or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a very underrated art form that's extremely difficult to do. And guys, all of a sudden, an actor is out of work. He's not getting a role. Suddenly, he's a stand-up. I go, what do you mean? How did he become a stand-up? And they they slap an act together and memorize it. Yeah, and and that doesn't work for well, me. Basically, it becomes a personal appearance. It's not really even a stand up as much as oh, we got to see Jeremy Piven or yeah, what, whoever they, you know. They advertise it as yeah. You know, whereas the things I've done and I've ho- I host a big event at the Garden every year, Madison Square Garden. Three years I've done it. Uh, it's a charity event. Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Tracy Morgan. Sebastian Maniscalco, I mean, big guys. I do a little four-minute monologue that's written for me, and then I just bring them in, bring them out. Yeah. I say I'm like, a, uh, uh, to this show, I'm like a brand muffin. I keep things moving. <laughs> well, I, you know, so I, did, I did. I couldn't remember that because if someone writes a joke, I'll forget it. Yeah. Well, my dad was always really good at jokes. Like, he had a head full of those, you know, joke jokes, yeah. and I can't. Remember that. I remember bits. I can do a 20-minute bit, but like I'm at an airport or, you know, a TSA, oh, you're a comic, tell me a joke. Like, I yeah. freeze. I'm like, I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know jokes. I don't tell jokes. That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. But, but uh, so that's how I had started. And then, uh, you know, I started getting some stuff. And I, I, I kind of saying, I, I wonder if I try harder, uh, will I get more? But as we know, as the stakes get higher, the competition gets steeper. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's it's harder and harder. You know, to get two or three lines is no big deal. Uh, in something, you know, sketch thing here, and I started getting some stuff. Adam Rifkin, the director, put me in three of his things. He was great to me, and you know, some something would come to town, and I would get a few lines and. And I was happy. It was it was fun to me. I wasn't worried about the money. Yeah. And uh, well, I remember going into your office at the Riv, and you had the casino movie casino picture on the wall. Yeah, from, yeah, yeah. From I had scene. a little thing there. I had a little thing uh, in the scene. I had a couple lines. You could barely hear me, but I got my sad card. And I had auditioned for De Niro, The Asswipe, and Scorsese. <laughs> uh, and so. Uh, you know, I started, you know, trying a little harder and I was getting more and more. But then, like I said, you know what happens? And I went to New York. You think, remember you think? Yeah, I remember you. Uh-huh. You think uh, he got married and I came to New York for a wedding and I auditioned for The Sopranos. And and I flew, you know, and they said, "If you would you come back for a call back? And I, I said, sure, you know, and I flew myself back. My wife talked me into it. And, uh... Like I said, I had the money to do it. And the first season, I paid my own way and put myself up. And it cost me 24 grand to make 22 grand. And the Riviera was great to me. Let me go, had vacation. And if I if I didn't have any dough, I wouldn't have been able to do that, you know? Yeah. And so uh, then I became a series regular. So it kind of was the right place, right time. The stars were lined up. I was prepared. I worked hard. Well, you you were really Steve 
all the way through this thing. I mean, everybody, the comic that I talked to that says, oh, Sharipa's in Sopranos? Of course he is. Yeah. You know, it's but like they, you were, they, they, you were, a lot of people didn't like that. that. Not everyone's, you know, not everyone's happy for you, as you know. Yeah. Not everybody's happy you're doing good. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Except I know. for a handful of friends. Most people want to see you fail. I know. Know, I've never really been that way. I've always been like, I want people to succeed. Because if, if they can do it, I can do guy. it. Yeah. You happen to be a good guy. That's not how it goes down all the time. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, and I just worked really hard and I did a whole, I wrote books and listen, I come from the business side. I know that the show wasn't going to make me this huge star. I, I, you know, I'm a realist. So, you know, I wrote books and I sold one to Nickelodeon and made a movie and, and, uh, you know, personal appearances, all kinds of stuff. You now, know? I didn't know about the book and Nickelodeon. What, which was, what was that? It's called Nicky Deuce. And there's five of us from the show. Jim Gandolfini's in it. Paulie Walnuts is in it. Johnny Sack, uh, Michael Imperioli. And, uh, who am I missing? Michael Imperioli, Paulie Walnuts, Johnny Sack, and Jim and myself. And uh, I sold it to Nickelodeon, and it took me seven years, but we got it made. It was a kid movie based on one of my books. I wrote six books. One was a New York Times bestseller. And then I created a few shows for Discovery, and I was a correspondent for Leno. A lot of comics didn't like that. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. I thought I was taking their gig, yeah. you know. And it made me happy. made me happy. <laughs> because... I'm not going to say everyone, but in general, a lot of comics are—they're not rooting for each other. They're not. No, that you know, we were before. I was telling younger comics this recently. When I started back in the early, well, late seventy, seventy-nine was actually the first time. But we—I was with Bill Hicks and Sam Kennison, and, and well, you were down in Houston. Down in Houston, yeah. And that's we, where you started. Yeah. And we used to always, we hung together, we stayed together, and we wrote for each other. Like, a lot of us would be like, you know, I've got this idea for a bit, but it's more you than me. And we just give each other stuff. Like, Sam Is gave, that where you're from, Houston? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up. And so that was, what was the show? Uh, Sharon? Uh, Who you on the Sharon, club? Sharon Menzel. Yeah. I Good did memory. a lot of stuff with her. She, she used to live in Vegas, and she was still booking. I think she passed away, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, she was great. She was living in Vegas uh, in the mid to late 90s. And I did quite a bit of business with uh, book and acts and stuff. But that was with Jimmy Pineapple. Exactly. Bill Hicks, Jimmy Pineapple, Kenneth, Esquire. You. Uh, a couple other guys. I Ron Shock. Ron Shock used to work for me. And we, we, when Ron was sick, we did some charities for him. Uh, I like Ron, yeah. Yeah, see, it's a different time. But as the years went on, these guys were like cutthroat kind yeah. of guys, you well, know. And like if a guy died or was in the hospital, I would get a call 30 seconds later. Hey, man, did you fill that spot? Uh, you have an opening. I heard you have an opening. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you ever heard the story about in, in Nashville about the comic actually dying in the club? Did, and Did you ever hear this? Yeah. There was a comic, and I can't remember his name. This has been years ago. But he actually died in the green room, like had a heart attack and died. And somebody next week goes, how was the show? And they go, the headliner died. Yeah, but how'd you do? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even take it. It's, no, how, well, how'd you do? Uh, the, uh, there was uh, George Miller. Remember George Miller? Uh-huh. He's always on Big Letterman. Big all the time, yeah. Very sick. He had leukemia. And he would ask me to 
you know, he still wanted to work. So I would book him a couple times a year. He was a friend of mine. He wanted to work, blah, blah, blah. And he was so sick. I think there was three comics on the bill. And he would bring guys that were friends of his, like, to kind of take care of him. Yeah. And uh, uh, he was so sick. He couldn't, like, he couldn't do the time, you know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, uh, he couldn't get out of bed. So I told one of the guys, I said, listen, you close the show. George is just going to do, like, 10 minutes. You close the show. Well, how much more am I getting paid? Not as a friend thing. Okay, I'll do it for no. I said, what? And I fucking motherfucked him <laughs> up and down. And then the other guy did it. I mean, how, you know, this is a friend of yours. And he wanted to get paid more money. This guy's literally on his deathbed because George died shortly after. Uh, listen, that's not just comics. That's as you get older. Life. Everybody in life, you see, you yeah. know, it's everybody. You know, everyone's trying to move to the front of the line. And, uh, you know, it is what it is, I guess, in every profession. Yeah. It's just so hard to be a comic. I, I, I wouldn't want my my kids to be a comic or an actor for that matter. Really? It's not so, even an actor? Oh, absolutely not. It's so, it's such, and I've done, knock on wood for you, I've done well, but it is a, a, a very difficult, as you know. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you were starting out as a comic now. It's a whole different world. I, I wouldn't do it. I've told that to other people. I would not do it if I had to start yeah. now because when I started, there was a, a, a limited number of comics and the limber of clubs. And now everybody you talk to, you know, hey, I'm a comic. Are you my brother? He's a comic. Do you know that? Listen, Randy Critico, you know him? Yeah. Crazy you do, comic. Did you do a Randy ra radio? Critico, he says every time a, a, a steel mill closes, there's 5,000 new comics. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you well, know, uh, yeah, I mean, there was less comics. There was more clubs. It's a different world. I, I certainly wouldn't want it. It's a very, like I said, very underrated art form. Well, you, I mean, I, you're up there. You got nothing in your hand but that microphone and your balls. And yeah. I've seen guys die. Youch. Well, I, I had been in a band in high school and had sang in a band. And so, yeah, all, when you front a band, you're kind of the front guy and tell a story and a joke or something. But if somebody screws up, you can always turn and blame the band. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you realize I'm alone on stage. This is it. I I have nothing to blame. I can't say, hey, you made a mistake. That's why that song sucked. You know, that's you just have to accept it as a Absolutely. I mean, and I've seen guys get booed off the stage. I've seen uh I saw a comic uh, it, it, he was the opening act. It had nothing to do with him. The minute they mentioned his name, they started. Fuck, really? Thousands of people were booing him. They just wanted to see the headliner, you know? Yeah. And, uh, well, the, you I, know? I did a show at the Riv. You put me with uh, uh, the Doobie Brothers one time. Oh, okay. I figured I'd put you somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'd done a I mean, you used to kill. You were one of the acts you were foolproof you've never had a bad set i never see you had a bad set. well thank you i appreciate that i i got that just recently from uh bob fisher who run the ice house in pasadena uh -huh. he yeah, did, i never have a bad set he did this big anniversary show for for the ice house and it was you know jay leno and paula poundstone and and uh just all the all the names that you can think of and i'm the last guy on the show I'm the very, and there's all these stars, and I'm the last, and I go, why? Yeah. He goes, because I know what you're going to do. I don't know if they're still going to be as good as they used to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I was about crapping in my pants thinking, I've got to follow Leno, and I've and got you, to And you did well. I did well, yeah.
Yeah. You know, uh, the Doobie Brothers, yeah, that was in the big room. There was a lot of people there. Yeah. And we, was, had, we had a few thousand, 2,500 yeah, people. Yeah. And that's where, one of the first times that I, uh, I worked with Jeff Dunham was at the, at the – he was middling with me at the Riff. I don't know if you, you remember were, this. You were you both were middle acts. No, I was headlining. He was middling. The middle. Wow, that's yeah. way back. Way, yeah. way, way back. Yeah. And he was just doing okay. And I said something to him about, man, you got to stop doing this children's puppet show. It's that's like for, you're like doing this church thing. And he goes, I have fans. You know, and he was still stuck in this. That, I've got- that's a guy, whoever, that's a guy that I got to say, who would ever thought that he would become what he became? I mean, you're talking, you know, 15, 20, 30 million dollars a year. Yeah. I mean, selling out places, selling out arenas and stuff. You know, that's a guy, though he always did well and I thought he was funny, but yeah. that was a whole, he stepped it up at one point to a whole nother level. Yeah. You know? Well, he said to me when I said this to him, and he goes, Oh, what am I supposed to do? Bloody pussy jokes like you? Yeah. I go, I go, I don't do that. He goes, Well, you know what I mean. Like he, well, look at another guy, Joe Rogan. He used to do. I had the XXX Extreme Comedy. That Joe late would then. come in. Joe's got the biggest podcast in the world. UFC selling out arenas. Joe went through the roof and then some, and deservedly so. Yeah, great guy. Always been a great guy. Uh, knew what he wanted. Stayed on the course. And look at him. Yeah, I mean, he would work the weekends for me, you know, Friday, Saturday night. He was a great guy, you know. I've always wondered, that's one of those things, you, you look at that podcast, and it was good, and he does well, and it just grew and grew. I mean, I you, you get better and better, but I always wondered, like, what made the hand of God reach out and go, you will be the ultimate podcast? Well, I think, I think he stayed the course. I don't think he did it for the money. I think at first it was just for him and his guests and interview, and... Uh, you know, when you do stuff for money, it usually doesn't work. And I think uh, that wasn't his intention. And I think he's a huge influencer. And I think he just wanted to get his views and his stuff out there. And and it's struck a chord with people all over the world. I did this podcast. Yeah. Man, people from all over the world to this day stopped me in the street. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, people started wanting to do his podcast and Mark Merritt. Like, they wanted yeah. to be on those pod- Like, uh, can we get Obama? Of course we can. You know. Yeah. I mean, you know, oh, of course, to even now. But uh, that that that's, that's one guy that I'm not saying I didn't say, oh, Joe isn't going to do it. I just had no idea. Look at this, you know. Yeah. And if you stay the course, you got to believe in yourself. Guy like you're doing, you just keep on, stay the course. It's people that veer off and try to change their name and funny names and yeah. Now you're somebody else, you know. You know, and I've seen all of that stuff. And and sometimes you just people are tired of the grind of the road and and the cruise ships. And I understand that too. They want to start a family, you know. Time to go to Plan B. Yeah. Well, you know, I did that break for a while. I did ra- I did morning radio for yeah, almost I know. twelve I years. Yeah, that's what I saw you in Nashville. Yeah, I was doing morning radio. Yeah. I was there doing a bit for Leno at the Country Music Awards. Yeah, yeah. I was at the CMAs. Yeah. I won three CMA awards for radio, so it was like I had a little shift in career and was doing. And how like, long were you doing that for? Twelve years. Awesome. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. 
And well, that had to help the stand-up, no? Yeah, it it did. I, I never stopped doing stand-up. I only, I'd get off the air on a Friday and I'd fly. Yeah, but to, I'm just saying that feeds, a lot of times one thing feeds the other. Right, because I'm having to come up with new stuff daily, got to come up with new ideas for the radio, and now I've got a new topic, or or I'd go do, do, you know, go do stand-up on the weekend, and then I'd come back with a whole new stuff for the radio, because like, here's what happened out on the road. So they were going hand you in know, hand there for a while. And guys kind of have to reinvent themselves. You know, if you think about it, Steve, not that many comics are just pure comics. Yeah. They've tried their hand at acting or writing or sitcom. You know what I mean? We could do a few. Lewis Black is one, but Lewis has had a few shows. Yeah. He still does good business. Seinfeld, until Seinfeld, he was a straight stand-up. But... Everybody kind of has it. Even Leno had his show. People got to just to do straight stand up. There's not that many. Yeah. Now, I, I wrote a pilot and I sold it to Disney back in, in late 90s. And, uh-huh. and they put me in acting classes for a very short period of time to learn how to play myself. It was actually like sure. a Roseanne, Roseanne kind of thing. I would be myself. In a, and I always thought it was weird. Like, I'm going to go learn how to play my... They go, yeah, you're fine on stage, but it's completely Listen, different. It's a, it's a whole different set of muscles, man. It's a whole different thing. When the people go, oh, you're just playing yourself. Yeah, well, you try it. Yeah. You try it. It's yeah. not, it doesn't work that way, you yeah. know, at all. And uh, I, I know of a story of a female comic who had the thing done. They were at the read-through. They were going to make this pilot. And she was playing herself. This is a true story. And they're at the read-through. She changes her voice over the weekend or however she was preparing. I don't know if it was an acting coach or something, but she's not playing herself. I mean, this was a slam dunk. They were at the read-through. Somebody told her, make a choice. The studio was there. They were there. They were going to make this thing. And she... You know, they took a break. They said, listen, just do what you do. I mean, could not do it. Could not do it. They even were going to have someone play her. They thought about replacing her with someone to play her. Yeah. Like, you know, this guy's going to play Steve McGrew. Yeah. Well, that that actually kind of happened later on because after my sitcom didn't get it picked, the same guy that did uh, Wayland, uh, uh, Marlon Wayans show, my wife and kids, uh-huh. the same producer. Yeah. He... He the project uh, project got dropped, and they thought about they liked the show so much they thought about re- trying to sell it again and yeah. re- recast it with somebody okay. else and you know which happens. Listen, it's not easy to carry a show. A sitcom is a whole different rhythm. It's hard, man. Yeah. It's really hard. People have no idea. Even the worst show, you know, like you know, like a terrible show, how hard it is and how hard to to uh, uh, you know. That you have to work. Yeah. You know, carry a sitcom. It's that's not easy. I'm not a I've done a lot of sitcoms and uh as far as going to acting class, Michael Strahan, I played his agent. They did twelve or thirteen episodes of a show and uh he had an acting coach with him uh on set, as did George Lopez at the beginning. And would say, No, say it like this. Now say it like this. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm all for it. Yeah. The more help, the better. Well, I, I kind of thought at one point, well, I'm just going to be a comic. This is what's going to happen. I'm not going to have it. But 
the more, the older that I've got, I still got ideas. I pitched some shows uh, to CMT that almost got a pilot a while back. It's like, yeah. you just don't give up. Part of what this career is, is you don't give up. No, should you, man? I mean, you got a lot of fans out there. That's your world. But, you know, uh, it, no, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, you know, that kind of country thing is what you do and, and and they always need stuff so. well that's exactly well, why would you give up that's what a friend of mine an actor friend of mine said recently he goes he goes you you're thinking like a comic you need to think like an actor because no matter how old you are they're going to need somebody for that they're going to need they're going to need a gas station attendant or they're going to need well, a grandfather you see or, a lot of you see a lot of comics and just people in general as the years go on and get older their career flourishes you see a guy 50 years old 60 years old and where's this guy been you know on laverne and shirley you remember that yeah. sitcom phil foster played their dad uh played laverne, one of their laverne's dad laverne's dad yeah. he was a stand-up forever you didn't know you know uh, Vic, i did not know Tabak, that vic tayback and alice he was a stand-up you know and then you know, in the later years, he becomes a huge TV star. Phil Foster was in Bang the Drum Slowly. He becomes a, a star later on. Yeah, I didn't know that Craig T. Nelson had been a uh, a stand-up years ago. I, I saw a, his name on one of the comedy store things. I was like, that's the guy from Coach? I didn't know yeah. he ever did stand-up. You know, so you, you got guys later on, whatever reason, you know, they, they did the right role, the right time, you know? Yeah. Well, man, I appreciate you doing the, the podcast. I, I love it. Good talking to you in person. I mean, I got a podcast if people want to tune in, Talking Sopranos. That's where I was going to go. It's on, uh, go to TalkingSopranos.com or Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, YouTube. Uh, it's doing great. We're doing a rewatch, me and Michael Imperioli, who played Christopher, and we went from the first season, and we're going to go through all 86 and uh, he's in California, I'm in New York, and we're doing it, and it's been going great. It's a lot of fun, and uh, we got different guests and people that made the show the success it is. So if you're a Soprano fan, tune in. But I'm on Blue Bloods. They shut us down uh, March 13th, but hopefully when things are up and running, we'll go back for our 11th season. That's been a good gig. So uh, there's a lot of Blue Bloods fans out there. It's a great show. We're happy to be part of that. And, and we got canceled the whole – we do a show called Conversations with the Sopranos. There's three of us. We show clips. And we went to Australia last May, and uh, we were supposed to do a European tour. This May, they got canceled. canceled. So. Yeah. Well, and let me, let me ask, at, before you go, I've always been a huge fan of, of Tom Selleck. I mean, a, a long time. How is he in real life? Is he a, is he a, a good guy, a fun guy yeah, to hang around? Or, guy. Yeah, yeah. Guy. Listen, I've had one scene with him. I don't see him that oh, often. Really? I've only had one scene with him. I've done 76 episodes. You know, sometimes people think you're all together – I don't see him. I've seen him three times since July when the season started. Ah. You know? Yeah. Last July. <laughs> Last great July. Great guy. Very complimentary. Uh, he's great. Iconic TV guy. Uh, and uh, no, he's great. Big baseball fan. I like Tom a lot. Good. They're all great. That whole cast. That Bridget, cast is amazing. The show is amazing. Good group of people, man. I'm yeah. happy to be. 
Yeah. You take care of yourself. Stay uh, safe. Man, I appreciate you doing this. I'll be in touch with you. And maybe at some point we'll we'll try to do this again on another topic. Absolutely. I, would, I would love it. All right, Steve, thanks for doing it. I'll see you later, man. Stay yeah, safe. Bro. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. And there you have it. The magnificent Steve Sharippa. Like I said, I've known him for 30 years. It was fun to watch his career grow <laughs> bigger than mine. But hey... <laughs> Like he said, never give up. Never give up. Never surrender. Wait, which, what movie was that? Never give up. Never surrender. Never give up. Never surrender. That's been my motto for years. Never give up and never surrender. Just keep doing what you love. And it's never a job, right? That's what they say. Find what you love doing and it's never a job. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast today. Um, I'm trying to do more of these for you because, hey, you know, we're all stuck in the house. We're all in quarantine. We're all trying to find something to entertain us or keep our brains busy. So I'm glad you decided to download the Remasculate podcast and make me a part of your life today. So till next time, guys, God bless America and go listen to some Oak Ridge Boys. I bid you adieu. Oh, won't you come with me and remind?